If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. If you could ask a historian anything about the ancient Greek and Roman worlds, what would you want to know? That's the premise of Dr Garrett Ryan's book, Naked Statues, Fat Gladiators and War Elephants, which tackles 36 burning questions about the classical world. In today's podcast episode, he speaks to Kev Lochin about what naked statues can tell us about Greco-Roman culture, whether the Greeks really believed their own myths, and how Cleopatra's lover Mark Antony was one of the ancient world's biggest drinkers. Um, Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's quite the title. Could you introduce the book for us and uh, how it's come about? So the book answers um, 36 uh, frequently asked questions about the Greeks and Romans, um, about uh, a whole wide range of topics from things like, um, uh, you know, did they wear trousers um, to, uh, did they believe their myths? Um, You know, so things like how they thought, how they lived, um, but focusing above all on daily life, ancient Greece and Rome. And uh, the book came about um, kind of organically. You know, when I was teaching these various survey classes of Roman and Greek history um, at the University of Michigan, my students would ask me all these bizarre questions. Nothing to do with the actual course topics, just kind of, you know, uh, off-kilter things. And uh, once I was in a museum and and a student just kind of came up and, um, you know, looked around, make sure no one was listening, and said, uh, Dr. Ryan, um, why are all these statues naked? You know, what's the deal with this? And, uh, you know, I had kind of a generic answer for that, but I started thinking from that point onward, wouldn't it be intriguing if you did a book that was just about these questions, the questions that people actually have about the ancient world, but um, either don't want to ask in school or think it's, you know, just kind of a strange question. And so I became more and more involved online um, on these various uh, history chat rooms. Um, above all, Ask Historians on Reddit, um, where I found some of these same questions answered, or asked, rather, um, and being upvoted by thousands of people. So there was obviously this very widespread curiosity about um, ancient life and these kind of, you know, weird little tidbits, you know, the minutiae. And uh, that was the book's genesis, and it evolved gradually from there. I took about a, about a year to actually write it because there was so much reading involved. But uh, when I finally did end up writing it, um, it was pretty much just a, a pageant of these strange questions that were asked um, online or in the classroom um, about the classical world. Before we do delve too much into the kind of the questions themselves, one thing I did want to pick up on was you mentioned there was a lot of reading in there. What kind of primary sources are we looking at for this era? Because it's not... Uh, say, quite as got a rich literary tradition as a medieval period. And that's very true. You know, one of the great frustrations of being a classicist is this, the paucity of good primary material. Um, So we have our kind of our basic classical texts, the ones that are read in schools, Um, you know, your your actual historians, like, say, Tacitus um, or Herodotus. 
But uh, often the most interesting stuff comes from the less read authors. Um, people like Pliny, Pliny the Elder, who wrote this encyclopedia, um, The Natural History, which covers, you know, again, the whole gamut of ancient knowledge. Or even the works of Galen, the great doctor who wrote many, many treatises in Greek um, about various me- medical maladies and the, the thought world of his time. Also, we have uh, papyri and inscriptions, kind of the documentary materials from the ancient world, which supply these wonderful um, either anecdotes, tidbits about how people actually lived and thought. So I try to cast a net as wide as possible uh, when doing my research. I'd often begin with, say, a classical dictionary, you know, the Oxford Classical Dictionary, that sort of thing, go to the bibliographies of the articles, and uh, work back through those bibliographies and their secondary sources to that primary material, uh, which could be a very time-consuming process, but was always rewarding for finding these um, wonderful anecdotes and strange facts. So before we uh, started this pod, we picked out some questions to go over specifically for my book. You mentioned one already. It's in the title, Naked Statues. Why are so many Greek statues naked? And I guess we should start here with what were attitudes to nudity like at that time? Well, right. You know, in a way, there's, you know, I guess the most surprising thing for people who don't know much about the Greeks and Romans um, or the Greeks especially, is how much public nudity there actually is. Um, above all, in the sphere of athletics, you know, to be in the gymnasium in the Greek world, which literally means naked place, um, is to be nude, um, to be unclothed, to be, uh, you know, working out, even just sauntering around. Um, people are not wearing clothing. And this really is the origin of the convention that statues are naked in the Greek world. But it's not really sure why they are naked in the first place in the gymnasium. You know, this was not a common thing. Uh, You know, the Persians didn't get naked when they, you know, exercised. The Romans didn't until they learned it from the Greeks. And there are several theories about why this was so accepted in Greek culture. There are these kind of fun anecdotes about um, this one runner in the Olympics. um, He lost his loincloth and then won the foot race. So it was better. You were faster without clothes. And another kind of a cautionary tale about a runner who managed to trip somehow in his own loincloth, don't know how you pull that off, um, and then broke his neck in the foot race. So, you know, it was, again, you, it was safer to be naked. But it probably comes down to, again, of the various theories, the one I find most convincing, as it's about equality in some, in some way, that if you were naked in the gymnasium, you couldn't be ostentatious. You couldn't wear fine clothing or jewelry. Um, it was kind of a leveling thing in a way of confirming the... Uh, that everyone in the gymnasium is a citizen of the same city, a compatriot, you know, um, working together. Whatever the origins of nudity in the gymnasium and athletics, um, it became, you know, this this was this became the ideal um, of of male beauty of uh, and 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 a sense of all beauty, divine beauty and human. Um, and so once that convention was established pretty early in Greek art, you know, around 500 BC, it just uh, gathered kind of steam. It, it became a uh, it acquired momentum of its own, basically, this convention, um, and was and acquired meanings of its own along the way. Um, and so it became associated more and more with um, what we call heroic nudity, that to be nude um, in a relief or a statue was a way of differentiating you from the common run of, you know, more, you know the mortal, mortal men, that, uh, you know, you don't, outside the gymnasium, you don't walk, you walk around naked. And so if you're so shown there with this, you know, magnificent muscles, you know, uh, more or less completely unclad, it's kind of transporting the subject out of the, the general circumstances of life and into this other realm, whether it's the realm of the gods, the realm of the dead, um, or the realm of just being exceptional in some way. Um, and so, uh, Really, it becomes a convention that's used not always in this, you know, for to show that you're a god or dead or important, um, but those become kind of the default meanings of nudity, that it's a way of showing you're different from other people. And so my answer to that student all those years ago was, well, it's a way of showing, you know, that you're 
different from most people. And he's like, well, I'd say so. They're naked. Uh, but but, but um, it's one of these things that has this fascinating backstory that we don't fully understand, but gets us, I think, again, into how they thought um, a little bit, which is you know the, the underlying purpose of the whole book. So just to track something you said there, it, it seems to evolve from a sense of practicality, this nudity, to mm-hmm. aesthetics and idealism. Is that fair? I think so. Uh, but yes, you know, it, it was kind of a gradual transition, and we, so we aren't totally sure why it happened in the first place. Um, but what became is just kind of a way of showing, um, more or less realistically, um, young men um, who were naked, you know, shown as they would be in a gymnasium, um, and became this increasingly right, um, idealized, um, etherealized, whatever you want to call it, convention for showing anyone powerful or different or exceptional. Um, but right, it was kind of this strange transition into right the realm of aesthetics. And to pick up on something else um, from what you've been saying, it seems to be very male-focused. So where does uh, depictions of female nudity fit into this narrative, or does it not at all at this time? Uh, it takes a while. Um, so you know, there are female nudes, but they're mostly um, on pottery. Um, so there's often like female, uh, like a prostitutes bathing, for example, as a convention um, on many attic faces. But, but when it comes to full-size monumental statuary, um, it really takes until the 4th century BC when Praxiteles sculpts the famous um, Aphrodite of Cnidos. And it had been conventional to show all goddesses, even Aphrodite, goddess of love and sexuality, um, fully clothed to this point. But he made this very daring choice to show Aphrodite nude um, as she was emerging from the bath. And uh, this became a sensation and a scandal when it first came out. I couldn't believe a goddess was naked like this. But it became wildly popular. The, actually, the statue became a tourist attraction. Uh, people would come from all over the place to see the Aphrodite. Um, you know, it had its own, little, its own small temple um, kind of in the middle of a garden. Um, and uh, it was imitated on a vast scale almost immediately, uh, both for the goddess Aphrodite, it became kind of a standard way of showing the goddess of love, but also by queens and empresses who wanted to be likened to um, Aphrodite and her role as goddess of fertility. Uh, and so, right, it was kind of this interesting. So for the male world, it comes from this nexus of politics and athletics and of public life. And for women, it kind of grows nudity. Um, this is a convention grows um, from this Again, kind of a single daring statue showing the goddess of love emerging from her bath. Um, but it's seized upon um, as a way of showing uh, fertility and likeness to Aphrodite in various ways. Um, so it's a different trajectory, I would say, female nudes, but it has the same underlying, it has the same effect. And that nudity becomes acceptable as a convention for showing that someone is powerful, exceptional, different in some way. Does that acceptance kind of change over the course of um, these civilizations? I just remember one part from uh, your book mentioning the Greek city of Aphrodisias, mm-hmm. and perhaps it wasn't always accepted all the time. Yes, they had to edit later on. So in late antiquity, um, as the Greco-Roman world, the classical world became Christian, um, there was increasing discomfort with the nudity that was surrounding all these public places. You know, uh, many Christian intellectuals wanted to see the myths as just sort of um, a literature, a source of lessons. They weren't necessarily offended by the myths themselves. You know, they were just kind of a dead letter to them. But there were some in the Christian community, um, above all uh, monks in many cases, um, who were offended um, by all of this glistening nudity on display all around them. And so some cities would take down their statues. They smashed them, you know, dragged them down, buried them. Um, others, many others, took kind of the halfway house step of simply um, 
breaking off their genitals, kind of just uh, taking a chisel and knocking off, you know, the, the twig and berries. And uh, or even in the case of women, they would actually um, shave off the breasts sometimes. So kind of desexualizing um, the statues. It didn't look good, of course, but kind of ridiculous. Um, but the idea was you could have the story and the aesthetic pleasure without the kind of the prurient understones of having these naked statues all over the place. Uh, and so in Aphrodisias, um, there's this, this fabulous, it's called the Sebasteion, which has this, these great galleries of statues um, showing the Roman emperors um, kind of subduing, subduing various mythological uh, manifestations, other myths as well. And all these, they went through systematically and knocked off all the genitals uh, on, on the men um, and kind of, uh, you know, kind of the, the perkier breasts kind of flattened those out to make it seem as, you know, desexual, desexual as possible um, without actually destroying the entire gallery of statues. Speaking of prurient undertones, there was one other um, thing I picked up from your book that I'd like to ask you about, which was how depictions of um, genitals in Greek and Roman art mm-hmm. differ between who's been depicted. So whether it's the, mm-hmm. uh, let's say, the civilised people, as they would call themselves, versus who they consider barbarians. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a bit about what's going on here culturally? Well, actually, and yes, and that was the second part of that student's question in that museum all those years ago was, and why are the penises so small? Now, And it is one of these things that's, that's kind of, you know, remarked um, by our, our history professors sometimes, you know, in hushed undertones. But it's one of these things that, that um, it, it comes like the whole convention of showing important men as these, you know, muscle-bound athletes. It comes from that realism initially, that someone who does work out, um, you know, who jogs, wrestles, their genitals do actually retract. It's, it's an actual physical thing. But it's more, ultimately, it evolves into this um, aesthetic a way of showing that they have control um, over their baser emotions, their baser impulses. That uh, someone shown with, you know, nice diminutive genitals is someone who's thinking with their larger head. Um, you know, they're, they're not uh, worried. Uh, they're, they're not uh, being carried off um, by, you know, tides of passion. But a barbarian, say, or a monster, um, they are shown invariably with these, you know, monstrous genitals because they are the opposite. They are creatures of passion. And so, again, it's kind of this code, like the whole convention of showing someone nude and muscular. It's a code for showing something about the subject, um, describing who they actually are through this visual language um, that's just, that's uh, couched in the language of nudity. I, I feel like we could keep mining this particular area for quite a long time, but we should bounce on to the next one, which is, did the Greeks and Romans believe in ghosts, monsters, or aliens? Now, I've heard you say elsewhere that this was your favorite chapter. Could you tell us why? Uh, there were so many wonderful stories in this one. Um, you know, really, they just kept coming. And, and to our mind, it's kind of a wonderful combination, this answer of like the stories about Nessie, say, and, you know, actual folklore, you know, what they actually believed about the world around them. Um, and it tells us so much also about how they thought. So um, like ghosts, for example, you know, the the ideas about the afterlife in the classical world are, there's, there's no single or simple conception of the afterlife, but it comes down to kind of a familiar division eventually of there being a, a vast uh, chasm under the earth, um, Hades, um, that has various zones for those who are, you know, virtuous or wicked, you know, Elysium for those, you know, who have done nobly in life, um, and the pit of Tartarus for those who did otherwise. Um, and, uh, but there's this idea that those who die either untimely or violently cannot cross over to Hades, even if they're not buried properly. 
And so these spirits are forced to wander the earth, um, kind of like, you know, the the modern conception of ghosts, wander the earth, um, uh, trying to find some kind of requital um, and to get over to the other side. Um, and in the process, they're not much, they're, they're bad news. They cause a lot of problems for mortals because they're bitter, you know, that they want to, to be gone. And so uh, the spirit of someone who's been murdered, for example, might torment the murderer. Or the spirit of someone who died um, in youth might linger at the spot where they died. And, and so, it's, again, it's almost like a modern conception, but it tells us a lot about how, again, they, they viewed the afterlife, how they viewed, you know, the nature of a life well lived, for that matter, as well. Um, and there are all these wonderful ghost stories um, about, you know, spirits that linger on in places um, or spirits that attack people or spirits that try to lure people even into marriage, kind of these these strange stories. Could you tell us one? Sure, sure. Uh, so, one of the most famous ones um, is the, the the ghost and the philosopher, and, and so th- there's this uh, this philosopher who moves into a, an abandoned house in Athens, and he's told that there's a ghost who dwells inside. And that's why it's abandoned and no one can live there. But uh, the rent's right, so the philosopher moves in. So you know, he's trying to write a treatise, you know, to distract himself, keep himself from inventing any terrors in the night. And he hears chains rattling in the distance, but he ignores them, being a good philosopher. And the chains rattle again, and they're closer. And then, sure enough, the ghost is there in the room with him, and it's this specter, you know, this old man with a long beard, you know, wrapped in spectral chains. And the ghost motions him to follow. And so that they go together to a courtyard in the center of the house, and the ghost vanishes. And so the next day, the philosopher has the courtyard taken up. And sure enough, there are the bones of a man wrapped in, you know, coils of chains. So he gives the man honorable, the bones an honorable burial. And that's the end of the ghost. Um, you know, the ghost just wanted to be buried right. And if that, he had lived in the house happily ever after. And that's the end of it. But uh, yeah, so it's kind of, again, this nice little way of humanizing the Greeks and Romans. They have these stories about, you know, again, these spirits that appear, you know, and, you know, demand satisfaction. One thing you uh, note in the book is that not all ghosts, they're not necessarily malevolent, and that ghosts can be almost leveraged to help the living. Uh, Yes, yes. So if you're a magician, um, ghosts are your first line of defense. They're the easiest demons to get a hold of, um, to use against your enemies. And when I say demon, and that's, I guess, daimon, the Greek world, kind of any spirit that's not a divinity, um, kind of a spirit of the air. Um, So yes, you know, there there are various spells. We have some surviving in papyri from Egypt for summoning ghosts, um, often ghosts of relatives, those you knew. And they're going to do useful little chores for you, um, often things like magical, like summoning a lover, say, you know, or helping a friend out. Um, so yes, ghosts can be very useful if you're the right man for the job and you have you know, have, the, have the ability to summon them in that way. Um, and there are also ghosts, apparently, that just kind of don't care about people. Um, there's this very odd story from the 3rd century about the ghost of Alexander the Great suddenly appearing um, near the Danube with a large ghost army. And it's kind of marching across two Roman provinces, not bothering anybody, just kind of marching across, performing some strange ritual by the Bosporus and then vanishing. And you know, what actually inspired this story, we don't know. But uh, it's kind of this, this idea that the ghosts could have you know, errands of their own that you know, didn't involve mortals. That was all there was to it. But most ghosts, right, are, are not friendly. Um, you know, they're there to either inconvenience or even attack mortals or even kill them in some cases in the pursuit of their ends to cross over to the other side. Ghosts, you say, there's significant belief in. Aliens, not so much. <laughs> aliens, not so much. Yeah, you know, it'd be fun. I, I kind of wish there were some uh, alien stories. But I just seem interesting in that, in terms of Greek and Roman cosmogony, mm-hmm. that all the planets are named after the quite significant deities. So 
How does that tie together? Yeah, it's kind of a strange thing. So, you know, the convention of naming the plants after the gods comes, we think, from the Babylonians initially, and is adopted from the, by the Greeks um, from them, and from, from the Romans, or by the Romans from the Greeks. And it's not really clear um, how closely associated the gods are with their eponymous planets, you know, whether Mars lives on the planet Mars or is the planet Mars in some way. It's not totally clear, it seems, for most of them, but... Um, there is an idea, at least by late antiquity, that the gods dwell among the stars in some sense. Um, the Platonists really believe this. And so like even like when Julius Caesar, um, when he dies, um, a few couple months after he dies, a comet appeared in the sky. And there was thought to be the soul of Caesar ascending to the heavens and becoming a new star. And so there is this idea that, right, the gods dwell um, off in the cosmos, um, and uh, they're the only inhabitants, though, of that cosmos. So there, there's the seven canonical planets um, in the, the you know, uh, in the geocentric idea of the universe, of the solar system. Um, and some philosophers think there are many other planets, you know, hundreds more in some cases, but there's never any speculation about inhabitants of those planets besides, say, gods or demons. Some think that, that the moon is kind of a staging house for ghosts, that those who die go to the moon first and then either, you know, uh, you know effervesce into the heavens or fall back to Earth. But there's really no idea that there's life in other planets that can visit us. You know, later on, uh, you know, UFO experts go back through the sources and try to find, you know, evidence in, say, celestial phenomena of UFOs appearing. There's like, a, there's some Roman source about, you know, burning shields in the sky that uh, excited a lot of people who were interested, are excited about that sort of thing. Um, but as far as we can tell, the uh, Greeks and Romans themselves did not actually believe um, in um, extraterrestrial visitors. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Mark Anthony, uh, most famously, um, was uh, so notorious a drunk, he had to write a treatise defending himself against being a drunkard. It's called On His Own Drunkenness, which does not survive, sadly. It would be a, would be a fun read for first-year Latin students. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, so ghosts, yes. Aliens, no. Where do we sit on monsters? Oh, definitely yes. Um, hard yes. Um, and I guess really monsters, I should say, I guess fantastic creatures would be a better way to put it. Um, there's really two kinds. Um, there's the monsters that live on the edges of the earth. You know, the monsters that live, you know, way off uh, beyond the inhabited, the bounds of the inhabited world. Um, and the farther they are from the inhabited world, the stranger they're thought to be. So I, I should say inhabited world, the classical world. So like the monsters of India, the creatures of India, um, are all these bizarre things. There's this um, this wonderful creature, the, uh, what is it? The Odonto Tyrannus, which um, the fanged tyrant is how I translate it uh, a little tendentiously. But it's this monstrous creature that, emer- that lives in the Ganges and eats elephants. You know, it, it has you know, three horns, you know, it attacks people who go by. 
there are the famous um, gold-digging ants of Herodotus, um, which live in the Himalayas or in northern India, and put up these huge burrows that sparkle with gold, you know, from deep underground. But if you approach them, the ants will tear you in pieces because they're the size of badgers and very vicious. And some of these have um, origins um, in actual creatures, like the gold-digging ants are thought to be a um, very much elaborated Himalayan marmots, as far as we can tell. But most of them are kind of just emerging from the idea that beyond the bounds of the known world, you know, there be dragons. You know, there are strange things on the edges. The other kind of monster or fantastic beast is uh, the creature of folklore. Um, and, you know, it's like the satyrs, the centaurs. And there are all kinds of anecdotes about people actually finding things that they are pretty sure are centaurs or something like it, um, and then reporting them to Roman authorities. So like at one point, um, a Roman detachment in the mountains of Arabia, what's now Jordan, more or less, um, finds what they're pretty sure is a centaur, and they try to bring this thing back to the governor of Egypt. But it dies along the way, conveniently. And all they can give him is kind of this mummified, what's probably a horse, this mummified, this mummified thing that the governor sends along to Rome as sort of a gift to the emperor. Or uh, there's a Greek city called uh, Tangara that find, that has in a temple, one of their main temples, a, a pickled mermaid, or merman rather, a triton. Um, it's probably, you know, a, I don't know, a porpoise or something um, that they found. Um, and uh, supposedly it didn't look anything like an actual triton, but they put it on, a, on their coins even um, for their city, you know, as this like, you know, merman um, there among their temples. And so there was this widespread belief that, you know, the creatures of myth, at least, you know, could exist and might exist. And uh, were treated as curiosities, whether like, say, like a Nessie would be, you know, kind of the, or a Bigfoot here in the States. Well, as you say, uh, some of the most fantastical monsters do seem to be the product of the myths, which leads us into this idea of whether the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans believed their own myths. And is there much we can say about whether these are regarded as analogies, elaborate ones, admittedly, or... Mm -hmm more literal truths? You know, it's a hard question to answer, partly because we don't know what most Greeks and Romans thought about anything. You know, we only have the, the opinions of the literate few, and the literate few whose writings have, have survived in you know, the ages, which is, you know, a tiny fraction of a tiny fraction. So the literate elite, you know, who do talk about you know, the masses and their beliefs about the gods um, tend to assume that they believe the myths, um, that they take them more or less literally. Um, and we don't know if that's the case or not, um, but it is clear that for all people, you know, elite and otherwise, the myths are a common property. They're, they're part of this, um, this cultural knowledge that everyone has, and it's a way to think with. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderfully rich metaphorical language that's used by everybody. But when it comes to whether it's believed, you can put the gods in your mosaics and your frescoes, um, you can put, you know, Hercules, you know, battling some monster, you know, in your, your bedroom wall. Does that mean you believe that Hercules actually fought the Hydra? And that is a harder question. It seems that most members of the elite um, from about the 5th century BC onward did not believe the myths. You know, they believed in the gods almost always, at least in some general sense. They thought that the myths were unworthy of the gods, um, that they, you know, the gods are shown in the myths as being, you know, terribly human or even worse than human. You know, they kill people, they have affairs, they do all kinds of strange and petty things. And so many intellectuals thought that the myths um, couldn't be committed by the gods. They, they couldn't have anything to do with the gods. And there were various strategies for dealing with them. Um, they could be made into allegories. Um, that was the favorite Stoic trick. They would do, use things like etymology and say, okay, well, you know, it might seem like, you know, Aries is, you know, skewering somebody here, but Aries is actually desire in this case, you know, dot, dot, dot. 
you might deny them entirely. That was the Epicurean approach, that there are no gods, or if there are gods, they are far off in their own realm and don't care about mortals. Or you might, like the Platonists, um, blame the myths on demons. Uh, again, these kind of lesser spirits, these mis- often mischievous or wicked, you know, who are the intermediaries between gods and mortals. And these creatures are much more prone to do things that we might see in the myths, they thought, than the gods themselves were. And so you kind of displace the myths. You make them, um, you move them from the realm of the gods, the realm of the deep to, you know, the realm of demons, the realm of men, the realm of imagination, and keep them as this, uh, again, this kind of cultural common property. You know, it's still the basis of education, reading the Iliad, for example, reading, you know, the Greek tragedies. You still learn about them, but you kind of... Um, deny their essence while maintaining uh, the knowledge um, that they, you know, again, the knowledge of what, what occurred. So it's, it's kind of, again, a halfway house, uh, as far as we can tell, that, you know, most educated Greeks and Romans did know the myths, knew them very well, uh, believed in the gods in some sense, but thought the myths didn't accurately represent what the gods were like. At least they hoped it didn't, because the gods and the myths weren't, you know, very admirable <laughs> in various ways. Yes, I, I, it does seem like there's a disconnect there between how you might worship um, gods on a daily basis because you want them to mm-hmm. bring you a good harvest versus these tales of, you know, debauchery, mm-hmm. misdeeds. I mean, you do a very, um, a very good summary of Zeus at the beginning of one of these <laughs> chapters about right. how profligate he is. Right. Um, why didn't you climb Mount Olympus and go and find the gods that are there? <laughs> Which are? Yeah, right. It, it seems like, right, that'd be an obvious way that, you know, the gods on Olympus, well, let's go find out. It's right there. It's the mountain. Um, and the answer is they did climb the mountain uh, pretty early on, actually. So Olympus is, a, you know, a huge summit. It has, ma- it has many peaks. Um, but on one of them, um, I think the third or fourth highest, it's called, I think, Hagias to Antonius. Um, it's about uh, a kilometer or so from the highest summit, about 300 feet, say 100 meters, or, 100 meters or so below the highest summit. But uh, there, for about 1,000 years, at least once a year, um, a party of Greeks from the city of Dion, just below it, would climb up to um, that summit um, and offer sacrifice to Zeus. Um, they are in full view of the highest peaks. So they actually did climb up it almost to the very top, maybe to the very top. They knew it was on top, what was up there. But that did not, it seemed, in any way compromise their their use of Olympus in, say, literature. You know, even in Homer, for example, Olympus is both a symbol and an actual mountain. There's this idea that gods have these golden palaces, these golden palaces on top of the summit. But at the same time, those palaces are hovering above the earth, often, you know, within, in the same book. They're this, this kind of dual conception. So the Greeks did climb Olympus. They knew that the gods had lived there physically. Uh, but they, they regarded Olympus still as a sort of special place. Um, there was this idea that... Uh, you know, they'd sacrifice once a year on this big ash altar to Zeus. This idea that the weather never never touched that altar, that there on the summit there was kind of an island of peace, um, you know, where the weather didn't rage. Um, that Olympus might not be where the gods lived, but it was closer to the gods in some way. Um, so again, it wasn't a matter of denial or acceptance. It was kind of this, well, maybe. You know, the gods aren't here physically, but they're closer here than they are elsewhere on Earth, perhaps. So again, an interesting way of kind of how they mediate between um, tradition and, you know, observable reality. One thing that does span the Greek and Roman worlds is our third question, which is about how much wine did they drink, Mm -hmm. which seems to be a very common trope on any kind of historical drama set in these periods. Everyone Mm -hmm. has a cup of wine in their hand every five minutes. Um, you, You describe wine in your book, as being a panacea, a staple, and a vice. Could you explain that a bit more? Yes. Um, so wine really is 
ubiquitous um, in the classical world. You know, it might not be the you know constant nonstop debauchery you might see in some of your you know lower end dramas, but it really is drunk in massive quantities, at least in some periods and some places. You know, it wouldn't have tasted very good to our sensibilities. You know, it was stored in these resin-lined containers, these amphorae, so it probably tasted and smelled like turpentine, more or less. Um, you know, it, it didn't age very well. Usually, it tended to go bad within a year or two, so it'd be very sour almost always. Um, it wasn't strained well, so you have all these, you know, these galaxies of pips and skins floating around, and it had to be had to be filtered out. And when they drank it, it was it was flavored with all kinds of strange substances, um, from marble powder to perfume, and above all, it was dosed with water. Um, so most wine was only about you know wine as drunk by the Greeks and Romans was only about one third or one quarter water by 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 volume. And so it was watered down, it was bitter, it tasted like chalk, it smelled like turpentine, but they loved it. Um, you know, they, uh, there's an estimate, a famous estimate by a, a French archaeologist, that the average Roman man drank about a, li- about a liter of wine a day, give or take. Um, and of course, was drunk, you know, over the course of the day, you know, with, you know, all three meals. Um, they weren't getting hammered constantly, but that's a lot of wine. Um, and... Uh, you know, again, there are, there are stories about legendary drinkers, you know, who would take down gallons at a time. Actually, there's one strange story about um, Alexander the Great, who supposedly died after, you know, taking this thing called the Cup of Hercules, this massive bowl, and trying to drink all three gallons it contained at once, and then keeling over pretty much and dying within a week. Not we actually died of, probably, but it shows, again, this idea, there was this, this culture of excess, the Macedonians, but the Romans as well. Um, and so, right, so wine is everywhere. Um, you know, Roman soldiers drink it as part of their everyday, part of their dinner. It's given as a medicine to the sick. It is, um, you know, part of the, the culture, the iconography, the, the texture of life in ancient Greece and Rome. What was it used to treat as a medicine? Oh, a whole whole range of things. Um, it was uh, an emetic, so they would drink it to the point of vomiting sometimes, <laughs> um, and that was supposed to help. But also just drink, sipping it was supposed to be good for you, um, for various ailments, just having a certain amount of watered wine, um, or even actually strong wine, um, if you had the chills, for example, was supposed to kind of, you know, heat you up and make you feel better. Um, and so the, the actually the, the medical properties of wine, um, you know, there's a vast list of them. It was one of the kind of the, the standard part of the doctor's kit, pretty much, in the classical world was, you know, X amount of wine and X dosage. You mentioned uh, Alexander the Great um, drinking from the Cup of Hercules. And which of the famous heavy drinkers do we know about who you perhaps <laughs> wouldn't want to invite to your dinner party? Oh, yes. Um, well, probably the most famous Roman one um, was a guy who had the nickname of Tricongius, um, which translates literally to the three-gallon guy. And that was his thing. He had a, a big cup that could hold three gallons of wine, and he could drink it in one go, apparently, and be okay. You know, he could just kind of keep trucking on after drinking three gallons of wine. And he was a huge hit uh, in the court of Tiberius. Um, the emperor loved this guy for whatever. He must have been a good, you know, good party companion or whatever. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he, his, he was notorious or infamous, whatever, for just being able to drink, you know, absurd amounts of wine and keep talking and walking, you know, not not pulling Alexander and drop dead. Um, Socrates was a famous heavy drinker, whether he could handle his wine very well. Um, you know, so at, at symposia, supposedly, you know, he could just uh, take down endless amounts of wine without showing any ill effects and, you know, go on about his day regardless. Um, several emperors were also notorious for their drinking. Uh, Claudius, for example, was a, a bit of a tippler. But... Um, 
yeah, you know, it was kind of a, it was the social vice. You know, Mark Anthony, uh, most famously, um, was uh, so notorious a drunk, he had to write a treatise defending himself against being a drunkard. It's called On His Own Drunkenness, which does not survive, sadly. It would be a, would be a fun read for first-year Latin students. Um, but uh, yeah, so it, it was, you know, again, ubiquitous. One thing I noticed there is in terms of those people were talking of uh, emperors and generals and philosophers, and I guess that might be related to kind of what kind of records survive, but what do we know about how wine consumption and the quality of that wine varies with class? For example, you say it's ubiquitous, but would slaves be drinking wine? Well, they'd be drinking bad wine. Um, so there was this uh, this drink that was made from pressed wine skins, um, a very, very weak wine. And that was given to field slaves, um, you know, so when they were harvesting, for example. So they would kind of take the already pressed skins of the grapes and press them one more time and mix that with water. And that was given to the slaves. Um, they also gave them sour wine, you know, vinegar, basically. Um, but it was very affordable, we think. So in Pompeii, there's a famous sign painted on the wall of a tavern, which says you can get wine here um, for um, one, one Oz, which is about half the price of a loaf of bread, you know, nothing. Um, and a good wine, it says, um, for four of the same coins. Um, so a good cup of wine for two loaves of bread. Um, and if that's true, then even good wine was pretty affordable. Um, but the really bet, the really high-end vintages um, were kind of like the modern, you know, like a, a modern oenophiles, uh, the recesses of his wine cellar. Um, they were treasured and cherished for centuries sometimes. Um, there was one vintage, the, the Opimian vintage, I think it was 121 BC, that was kept for up to 300 years in some cases because it was valued so highly. I mean, it would have been drinkable by the end. It would have been just paste by the time, you, by 300 years after it was done. But there was some Roman wines which could be aged for 30 or 40 years and still be very good at the end of that. Um, and so there was, at the, at the high end, um, this very rarefied wine market. Um, but most wine was, we think, very affordable, um, even for um, the enslaved. And talking about the ubiquitousness of it, did it replace water as your go-to drink, or was was water available to people? Well, in the city of Rome, water was very widely available. You know, thanks to the wonderful Roman system of aqueducts um, and the hundreds of public fountains in Rome, um, safe, clean water um, was very widely available throughout the city. So it wasn't a matter of, you know, having nothing else to drink. It was a matter of that you know, it was what was expected to be drunk with a meal. It was just kind of a cultural expectation. Um, and uh, for that reason, it just, you know, had its inertia that kept it being consumed in massive quantities all across the classical world. And given that cultural kind of certainty, what were public attitudes to drunkenness like? I mean, obviously, Mark <laughs> Antony, they had to defend himself. Is oh, that, well, right. Um, is that, that par for the course? Well, you know, so again, not, not, not too different from today, where, you know, it was expected that to be a social drinker was to be, was expected. You were supposed to have, you know, a cup or two of wine at a dinner party. But if you drank to excess, um, that was taken as a reflection on your character, that you didn't have self-control. Um, and so you didn't want to be the guy known for, you know, shutting down every symposium, you know, for being the guy who was the last one out the door. Um, you know, there, there was the, this culture, like in classical Athens, for example, symposium culture, say like an Alcibiades, you know, where you can be, you know, notorious as kind of this, this hedonist, um, and it wouldn't hurt your reputation. It's only a certain kind of person can, can, get, can get away with that. For most Greeks and Romans um, who want to be known as you know, respectable, trustworthy people, um, it's not a good idea to be publicly drunk, um, you know, very often. 
Uh, there were a couple contexts, like there are certain festivals, for example, of Dionysus, say, where it was totally acceptable to be drunk because you're celebrating the god. Um, but that was a kind of an occasional thing. In general, you know, if you're at an ordinary dinner party, you want to uh, play it cool. So this book is a collection of 36 question answers about Greek Roman, part of which you have answers. I wondered what kind of questions have you been asked that prove most difficult to answer or perhaps have eluded you so far in finding an answer? Hmm. Well, I will say that in this book, the one that was hardest to answer um, was, I think, let me see, I I think it's chapter 34. Um, It has the burial of any Roman emperor been discovered intact. Um, And I was asked this one by a student and my answer was immediately, well, no, of course they were all robbed. Um, but then I realized how many emperors there were. You've counting the Byzantines, for example, and there's hundreds of these people. And so tracking that down took me weeks of research um, and all over the place. Um, and there actually were some emperors, it turned out, you know, whose burials had not been despoiled, um, you know, over the centuries. Um, there's one under St. Peter's Basilica, of all places. Um, another one was found on, under the floor of a monastery in Constantinople. Um, but finding the answer to that question, I despaired of it at first. I'm like, how can I ever find all of these, you know, these details? Um, but thanks to the pandemic, gave me a lot of time. You know, I was able to uh, hunt down these various things. So, I, I mean, yeah, there are, there are questions I could not answer. You know, I started this um, book with a list of 100 questions and then winnowed down to the ones that appear in it now. Um, and the ones I didn't include, either I thought weren't intriguing enough or I couldn't answer in rich enough detail to make it a satisfying chapter. Um, and so really, the, 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 it comes down to not, not so much not being able to answer it as not being able to answer it in a truly satisfactory way. Um, and, you know, again, half the pleasure of writing this book was finding these, you know, little tidbits that made the answer satisfactory. But there's just a, you know, kind of a labor of time. And you come to the end of the book with a short section on the wider history of the classical world. I just wondered... Um, why you felt it was important to include that kind of summary in the context of the rest of the book? Well, it's sort of a basic background. You know, for, for people like me, you know, who have studied classics, you know, for our, well, a decade and a half now, um, you have this kind of assumption that everyone knows, you know, X or Y or Z about the ancient world. Um, but it's just not true. Uh, not anymore, anyway. You know, it used to be that, you know, everyone had this background in, you know, kind of the, the Western Civ style stuff and knew the fundamentals of the, the narrative of the classical world. But I think so many of us have are, are just bored out of our mind out of our minds by our history classes in school. Sadly, they forget you know all of that basic narrative. Um, it was meant to kind of provide the context in a, what I hope was kind of a fast paced and engaging way. Um, this larger kind of political narrative about um, the classical world. Um, so again, just sort of a if you wanted the, the bigger story, you know, what, what I'm giving in the book is mostly just kind of bits and pieces, these kind of strange questions. Um, and if you wanted the, uh, the larger story that those bits and pieces illuminate, um, that's meant to be that that context there in the back. Perfect. And finally, one quick question that isn't in the book, but is one of the most popular questions about the Roman world, certainly. Did togas have pockets? <laughs> no, it does not seem so. Um, you, you could make one. Um, so if you if you held your left arm just so, you'd have what, what they call the sinus, kind of this long, deep fold that could be used to hold all kinds of things, um, including leftovers after parties. Um, so you could kind of fashion one out of the folds of your toga. But in general, they'd wear like a money belt, basically, um, or have a slave carry it um, if you're, you're going somewhere and have things that you can't fit in, you know, your uh, little arm, arm pocket. 
And is that what Mark Antony was sickened to? I believe so, yes. Yeah, kind of into his elbow, basically. So like covering his sneeze, you know? That was Dr. Garrett Ryan. He's the author of Naked Statues, Fat Gladiators and War Elephants, Frequently Asked Questions About the Ancient Greeks and Romans. That's available now. Garrett also runs the Told in Stone YouTube channel, where he discusses daily life in the ancient world. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Newitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.